Do you own firearms? Did you know there's an easy way for you to let everyone around you quickly see whether your firearm is loaded or unloaded? Well, meet muzzlestick, barrel, and chamber flags. Muzzlestick, chamber, and barrel flags offer a quick way for anyone, whether they handle firearms or not, to quickly see the loaded or unloaded status of a firearm. And that could save lives. Are you one of the nearly 80% of firearms owners that keep a loaded gun out of the safe for personal protection, taking an extra safety precaution by using muzzle sticks, big, bright barrel and chamber flags will let everyone around your firearm know if it is loaded or unloaded. Muzzle stick does not recommend keeping a loaded firearm outside of a gun safe, but the reality is that some firearm owners do. Clearly marking a gun status communicates to others around that may or may not have firearm handling experience that it is something that they would not want to handle. Muzzle stick is not intended to replace the rules of firearm safety. However, their chamber and barrel flags give firearms rapid and clear identification, which could result in saved lives. It's time for you to do everything you can to be a safe and responsible firearms owners. Head over to muzzlestick.com. That's M-U-Z-L-S-T-I-K.com today to place your order. After all, we all only have but one life. Hello, ladies and hello, gentlemen. This is the Victor Davis Hanson Show. I'm Jack Fowler, the host. Welcome to the wisdom of Victor Davis Hanson. He is the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow with the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. Victor, we've yet to talk or get some at least preliminary thoughts from you on, on AI, which is everywhere, artificial intelligence. Everyone's talking about it. One way or another, I must say, I am, as I am on many issues, confused, wondering, should I be afraid? Should I be heartened, et cetera? But we'll get we'll get your initial thoughts on that. And we've got oh, I don't know, Don Lamone to talk about some of the, these wonderful pieces you've written for your website, victorhanson.com, called American Graffitis, a three-part series so far. So there's a lot to talk about on today's episode, and we will get to all this and more right after these important messages. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. 
Got your happy price, price line. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. So, Victor, I came back to Milford, Connecticut from Washington, D.C., where I was the last two days. For, it just was a terrific conference put on by the Calvin Coolidge Foundation. Uh, Coolidge was uh, inaugurated, not born inaugurated, he was sworn in. Uh, his presidency began in, in 1923. So this is his centennial year. So the foundation put on a really wonderful two-day conference. Amity Schles, who many of you know, Amity is the president of that of the foundation, award-winning, best-selling author, winner of the Bradley Prize. Amity and her team put on a great conference. But you know, what's the what's the relevance of Coolidge? Uh, you know, Calvin Coolidge is a is a truly diminished man by from the perspective of many historians, but he was truly a great president and one pretty much in line with the founders of the country rather than, uh, you know, more recent presidents was interested, interest is more celebrity, et cetera. But it was it was really terrific. And one of the interesting things that, that happened, Victor, and I'm just going to get into AI, is your I met your colleague, uh, John Cochran, one of your, your fellow fellows, from the Hoover Institution, I chatted with him a little bit. I mean, he was up on a panel on economics, comparing uh, the uh, the the economics of the 1920s to current times. Really, quite interesting. And he was he made just a short comment, but it was about artificial intelligence and AI. And he said, "See, I'm pretty upbeat about that. Uh, what its effect is going to be." for uh, the American economy and American society. He didn't elaborate on it, but it got me thinking, you know, when we get back to, to, on Saturday to the show, I'd like to, you know, just pose this to you briefly, Victor, because we've never d- discussed uh, AI. And so just curious, uh, are you like me, Victor? Are you still sorting this out? What are your thoughts I am, about I, it? I am, and it's kind of embarrassing because uh, one of the locus classicus of, of AI is Stanford University. and and I work there, and you know, I when I'm there, I usually alone. I eat alone, and I go down University Avenue or other places, and I see these robots. Right? I see <laughs> these on. The, I was down in Santa Monica the other day, and something bumped into me, and I turned around, and it was a movable box, and it had an antenna on it, and it was navigating to deliver food for someone. So I've seen this a lot lately, and uh, also. I talk to people who are still actively teaching, and I I teach every year in the fall, as you know, at Hillsdale, and I haven't encountered it yet, but these artificially composed or robotically or artificially intelligence composed essays that uh, professors are getting increasingly. So it's going to be a problem. John Cochran is one of the brightest guys I've known in, at the Hoover Institution. I've admired him, not only his intelligence, but during the whole uh, Scott Atlas tragedy when the university turned on him. And by the way, Scott was proven correct, as, as we're learning from the Fauci uh, erosion. Um, John was one of the few people of my colleagues that would speak out on behalf of Scott and Scott's right to speak out freely. So I, I've always admired John Cochran, and I, I respect his work. He's very accomplished, originally at University of Chicago econ- uh, economist. But uh, I guess 
I'm somewhere in the Terminator state, right? So when right. I see <laughs> when I see all these ro- robotic ideas, or I see these things uh, that they're going to replace people or soldiers, you wonder if if somebody can program into it a spontaneity. And I'm not sure that's for now. I'm erring on the side of that humans create them, and so they're going to be as bad or good as humans. Only they're going to speed things up. Uh, that's what technology does. But ultimately, it's humans behind them. And uh, so that that's going to be militarily, I've been a little bit more interested. And it's not that they're changing the rules of war, that they never change because human nature is constant throughout time and space. But it cuts down the reaction time available. In other words, when you have these automatic systems and these rapid calculating mechanisms, etc. You don't have much time to make a human decision because uh, everything is speeded up. That's true of our society in general, but especially with artificial intelligence, how it pertains to war. And from what you're reading about Ukraine, it's starting to get into, if this thing continues, it's starting to get, you're starting to see systems that are getting pretty eerie over there. And I think that it's going to be sort of like the Spanish Civil War, a laboratory for a lot of spooky weapons to come online. And yeah. they're experimenting. Both sides are experimenting rapidly. I think you could almost make the argument that the way they're fighting the types of weaponry and drones and use of computers and observation, online observation, et cetera, is much different than it was just a year ago. Victor, you mentioned, I think you said bad humans. and. I don't know if Don Lemon, or oh as I prefer how you pronounce his name, Lamone, uh, is qualifies for that. But this character, this is we're going to get into him and Nikki Haley. But this character uh, had been in some trouble already for kind of bullying or whatever uh, treatment of his colleagues on the CNN morning show. That I don't know who watches it. I don't know anyone who watches it. I, he- I hear like three hundred thousand Americans do. So you know, so they got some eyeballs. But um, on top of the contretemps with his colleagues, then at the when H- Nikki Haley announced uh, that she, uh, threw a hat in the ring that she's going to run for president, he criticized her for being a woman not in her prime. I I think Nikki Haley's in her fifties. Uh, I don't know what your in your prime is. I guess you got to be twenty years old. Which is, certainly, Joe Biden is. Well, well behind the shelf life of of anything being prime. So he attacked her. I believe today he's apologized. I think CNN put him on unpaid leave. I'd like to be put on unpaid leave someday. I don't understand. I don't understand. Yeah, I don't understand that concept. So you're being punished by being paid and then you don't have to work. So all the people who play by the rules get paid, but they have to work. It doesn't make any sense. I've never understood it. Yeah. You, it's the employer says you're so detestable that I'll pay to get rid of you. Is that it? And it, it, you can see that the, the incentives are all upside down. So a person can be outrageous with the idea that he'll be on unpaid leave. It doesn't make any sense. I've never well, I've never agreed with it. I thought it was stupid. Yeah, well, it's sort of to twist that expression, you know, nice work if you can get it. So, hey, work that's not working, you're paid is terrific. So, uh, anyway, Victor, he, um, yeah, he, so he's 
I'd like to get your thoughts on on this character and and Nikki Haley, but also also uh, she's he Don Lamone is not the only one sticking it to Nikki Haley. Of course, the gals uh, Whoopi and company on the View uh, attacked her, and then Ann Coulter, who comes out of you know the woodwork every once in a while to you know carpet bomb somebody she's done it to trump and now she's doing she's done it doing it to ann Col- to nikki haley she said the other day in some she was on mark simone's radio show nikki haley should quote go back to her own country end quote where they quote worship rats end quote she calls ann coulter also called nikki haley a bimbo and a preposterous creature so i don't know i you know nikki haley may not be uh uh, many people's preference for president the republican candidate in 2024 but uh gosh if she was the candidate i think that that would be fine i'm not who cares what i say i'm not endorsing her but she's not a bimbo she's not preposterous by the way she's born in america you know well this is about go back to your own country What do you think about all this of Lamone and Coulter and any and, and any thoughts you might have uh, on Nikki Haley herself as a candidate? Well, Don Lamone is a character. He's kind of he's entered Jesse Small, same kind of affected accent of his last name, Smollett, Jesse Smollett territory. He's a character. It's a joke. He uh, would not be there if he was not black and gay. He knows that. He doesn't have very much talent. He's made a he was from an upper middle class family. I think his dad was an attorney. He's not discriminated against. He's not a marginalized person. He's used affirmative action for his own career trajectory very successfully. But when you look at actual accomplishments, he's always saying crazy things. And, you know, he, he, he wasn't he in the black hole that this airliner disappeared in the black hole. And then he was talking about Muslim travel bans. I remember that white people, they should be white travel bans. He got a little bit of attention when he called Donald Trump a racist because of the Haiti remarks that Trump made. So he, he tries to be a performance artist. The problem is that. When you had Brian Selter and Chris Cuomo and all of those mediocrities and they tanked the CNN to such a degree that they actually had to fire some of them, he should have been the first fired. But because of his protected status, he wasn't. And he so then he's been, I guess, demoted. When I say demoted, I don't even those people make so much obscene salaries that I don't think they get demoted at all. But he's in the morning. He has no audience. He's with two women. They're both brighter than he is. He doesn't like them to talk. They embarrass him by just normal conversation because he can't, uh, you know, capture the spotlight. Everything about him is odious. And he's 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 one of these people that, that has no achievement. He, he hasn't achieved anything. So when he says this about Nikki Haley, we have this. He says, go Google it all. Any ignoramus would say if he was even going to comment on her, he was trying to say that she shouldn't be making fun of people over 75. He could have said that. He could have easily said that. Instead, he had to say that she was past her prime because women were past her prime. And all he had to say is if he thought that in some weird way, I suppose he was saying that from the onset of menstruation to menopause, women are in their prime years of child uh 
you know, they can raise children, they can produce children, they're fertile. But after fertility, they're not able to have children. That's about all you can say, because, I mean, whether it's Queen Elizabeth or Queen Victoria or Margaret Thatcher, uh, you name it, there's been a lot of very brilliant women. There's no difference in the sexes as far as ages and decline. And most women, by the way, I couldn't understand when he said that because I was looking back at all the people I've known, and almost in every case, the female member of the marriage has outlived the male member. And I've got this nightmare that I have all these friends, their wives drive them, right? As they get into their 70s. And I right. I don't... And that's just what happens. So, and they're the same age. So, this idea that women are past their prime, that when you, I go down the highway when I see a guy in his 70s, his wife is driving him. So, I'm thinking, well, what is he talking about? He didn't know what he was talking about. And so, he's he's angry because he knows where he's headed, Jack. Where is he headed? So, he's headed to be fired because he's talentless and he makes a lot of money. And he thinks he has, like every person who's suffers from hubris, he doesn't understand uh, that there's such a thing called nemesis and it's going to, it's got him now and he's going to be fired and out of a job. And if you and I had this conversation two years from now and you said, what do you think of Don Lamont? I wouldn't know who you're talking about. And he knows, he knows that. And that's, he's a junkie for adulation and he's not going to get any very quickly. So he's saying these things to draw attention. So we're talking about him. And everybody else is talking about him, even though it's in a negative context that Don Lamont would rather be uh, caricatured and ridiculed and at least mentioned than be what he otherwise will be is completely irrelevant and obscured. As far as Nikki Haley, I, I don't understand, you know, the animus toward her because uh, she was a good governor. She was very effective at the United Nation. She has this ambiguous relationship with Donald Trump in the sense that she owes her elevation from a Southern governor to a national figure because of his appointment of her as the UN representative. And she did at that job what a lot of very effective people have done. Women, she's kind of like, she tried to emulate, and I think it was successfully done, uh, Jean Kilpatrick. Who, you know, nobody knew who she was till she went, took that forum and she let, right. she let the UN have it and expose the hypocrisies of all these American critics. And so Haiti was doing the same thing and it, it did, had the same result. She became a household word, but nobody can do that for much more than a year or two. It's an exhausting job, no doubt. So that's where she is. And she's, so what is she, what's her candidacy? Her candidacy is she's trying to tell, the Jeb Bush, uh, Mitt Romney, old Republican country club set that I uh, I can take you guys back into the party and I can get up. I'm about I can go about as far MAGA as you can stomach and I can do that. So I think that's her that's her angle that she's going to run and say to moderate Republicans that, you know, didn't quite like some of the stuff that Trump did, the industrial policy or, you know, skepticism about cutting Social Security that Trump had. They were more Paul, the Paul Ryan constituency. She's saying that she can capture and veneer it over with MAGA. And I think that's what her, her are, are, she's kind of a John Bolton person, that type of person. 
neoconservative hawk. So I don't know. As far as Ann Coulter, I've met her. I think she's in a difficult position because, uh, look, she's got two famous political positions. One was an unfettered adulation of Mitt Romney. Remember that? Mitt Romney could do no wrong. Mitt yeah. Romney was a saint. Mitt Romney should get the nomination. He got the nomination and he tanked. And yeah. he, since then, with all due respect to Mitt Romney, his political, uh, what's the word? His political career has gone all downhill. He's been humiliated by Donald Trump. He's angry at Donald Trump. He wanted Donald Trump's endorsement to run for Senate. He got it and he immediately bit the hand that fed him. He votes with the Democrats. He looked ridiculous. He looked like Cadmus and Tiresias out of Euripides Bacchae when he was out on the BLM march. Remember that? Exactly. And I was just going to say that that's the real disappointment. Yeah, uh, he was. Well, so, and yet she was. she's telling the, the conservative movement, I am the most conservative person around. But he, she was for Mitt Romney, and he's an embarrassment. And then she spent much of her uh, life in 2015 and 2016 trumpeting D Donald Trump. Remember that the book was had that strange talk, God something or Trump. Uh, it was it was just fanatically Donald right. Trump. And then she had a falling out with him over, right. I guess, my immigration and blamed him. Right. But if anybody goes back and looks at 2017, 18, 19, before we really stopped the porous border, all you will read, if you and I've done it because I, I, I looked at it very carefully for the dying citizen, all Trump was trying to do was close the border. And he was, two things stopped him, three things stopped him. The Democratic opposition after he lost the House, number one. Two, the courts, he was sued every single day. And three, the administrative state within, you know, the, within the Pentagon, the DO, the DOJ, Homeland Security, they all sandbagged him. And yet he finally did close the border. She, she should see that, but she blamed him, uh, for not closing the border quick enough. So then as far as the racial stuff, I, I don't understand that at all because Nikki Haley is a U.S. citizen and I don't think Nikki Haley's been to India any more than a, a U.S. citizen. I don't think she knows anything about any more than you know anything about Ireland or Italy or I know anything about Sweden. So I don't I don't quite get that. It's uh, yeah. And I suppose she's angry that somebody who's second generation should not be the arbiter of uh, iconic names as you and I talked about statues because she did. She was an iconoclast in South Carolina. She dismantled stuff, right? And she she went along with the woke movement on that. And I don't. But the way America works is, remember, it doesn't really matter how you can be came over in the Mayflower, or you can cross come in legally. But it's the way our system works, you're just as much an American on the first day you're a citizen than if you've been here six generations. Right. You can criticize that. You can say, well, they don't have the acquaintance with the traditions of America that my family does, but that's the way it is, like it or not. So for her to say that she is more American and Haiti doesn't have a right to, you know, a moral or spiritual right to take down a statue, you can disagree with her, right. but this this idea that, and I don't know what the bimbo is, that is she saying that she's... <laughs> I don't either. I was crazy. Is she saying, is, she, is I mean, if you're saying... 
that she's an attractive Republican candidate. Is it Christian Rome? Christine Rome that way? Christy Rome? She's uh, no. Yes, yeah, I actually I uh, saw no, she, excuse she's me. at that conference. I I saw. Yes, yeah, she's very beautiful. Woman. Yeah, she is. Striking would would Ann Coulter say that? Would people? I think people said that about Ann Coulter when she was younger. That she's a bit. But that was stupid as well. Right. So I think that. Uh, I have a soft spot for Ann Coulter for this reason. On that tragic day, September 11th, 2001, I was scheduled to give a talk at Hillsdale College on George Patton and his legacy. So I got in three in the morning. I got up. I went out to my seven, six o'clock flight, which I guess was nine o'clock. And I got out on the tarmac. And we started to take off and we were about, I don't know, a thousand feet. And the pilot announced that there had been a private aviator hit the World Trade Center. And for some reason beyond his comprehension, he said, I don't know how this would affect us, but we have to go back to the airport. So we turned around. I didn't make it to Hillsdale. We landed and then, of course, in that pro in that time period, the truth came out and they locked down the airport. And I was sitting in the airport. You know, I had written columns for Wall. Uh, you know, I, I wrote a lot for the Wall Street Journal. And but I was teaching eight to 10 classes a year at right. Cal State Fresno. And I, I was trying to write a book every year. I had three small kids. I was farming. It was just a really hectic time. And I get a call out of the blue. From Rich Lowry, your colleague. Great guy, Rich. I've always liked Rich Lowry. He called and said, would you like to write a column? And I said, well, what do you mean, a column? You mean like one? And he said, uh, no, we'll, we'll see if you can write a couple this week and next about 9-11. I never really done that on a regular basis. That, and so the next thing I knew, I did that for 20 years and never missed a column. And I asked him, in that course of the conversation, well, why did you call me? And he said, well, I liked your book, The Soul of Battle, but we had to let Ann Coulter go because she wrote a column just filed suggesting that they nuke, we nuke Mecca and convert the survivors. And we can't print that. So we need somebody, uh, an additional person to write. So that's how I got into National Review and the column business yeah, because of that. And then she was very critical, I think, of you guys at one point. Yes, so I was. Uh, go ahead. You can say it. OK, so she was looking at, <laughs> I suppose, Jonah Goldberg and Rich Lowry, and they were all in their 30s or 20s at that time. Yeah. And, and she said they were girly men or girly boys. Girly, girly men. I guess I was a girly man also. OK, yeah. all you guys were in your prime. And yeah. that's what that's what she said. And that was. But anyway, uh, it was her implosion that allowed me to go. But I didn't feel too bad because she had a lot of success with a lot of the books she wrote. She and did, yeah. you can go back in old clips and see her predict that Donald Trump is going to get the nomination and win. And everybody looked exasperated on these panels and thought she was crazy. But she had good at, she had good political instinct. I think she's now a performance artist. So she said these things. Because like Don Lamone, we're talking about them. But uh, just to sum up, I, I have no animus toward her. I think she would say that she's been diminished in some ways, partly to her own efforts. Maybe not. I don't know what her readership is. I haven't seen a lot of books she's written lately. I think if she just went back to square one and wrote the kind of books that she wrote, some of them were pretty good. They were interesting. They sold well. 
and forget all of the the, the sensationalism and just try to get uh, calculated uh, analytical commentary, she she would be back uh, where she was. Yeah. But, I don't understand the contours of people's careers. What makes them popular or not popular? Well, Victor, don't you don't you ever become a performative artist? I try or, not to. Yeah, and I, I, a, it would a, crush a wise, my soul if that happened. A <laughs> wise voice once said to me, my mother, and I was uh, thirty, okay, thirty four or thirty five, and I had I was. Teaching, I was in bad shape. I had mononucleosis, and I wrote a book called *The Western Way of War*. And John Keegan wrote the introduction. It was published by Alfred Knopf, which is kind of weird for a Fresno State professor farmer, and it sold very well. And I got royalties for about twenty thousand dollars. And my mom said, "Just to remind you, if I were you, I wouldn't leave this farm because there will be <laughs> if you continue at the, what you're doing." Yeah. You'll probably write more. You'll make some, a little bit more money. You'll get a little bit more attention and don't let it go to your head. So stay yeah. on the tractor, go to farmer's market, pedal fruit, and, but don't be part of that world. She but, hadn't, she had graduated from Stanford and Stanford Law School with a judge and she lived in a small farmhouse till she was 60. Wise advice. Yes. Yes. I think it's wise advice. Everybody yeah. needs to keep that advice. You know, it's sort of like the emperor or somebody during the, the triumph, the the slave runs behind him and whispers in his ear, sick transit Gloria, so goes glory. It's going to be vanishing. Yeah. DR, as my mom always told me, I, I don't want to quote my mom too much. I'll sound like Joe Biden quoting. That's no. What, hey, Joey. <laughs> we always say, my dad told me, hey, Joey. But yeah. my mom always said, remember to be friendly to people for no... For the intrinsic value of it, but for the more practical, if you if you want to be practical, when you ascend, you always will descend. And if you're nice to people on the way up, you'll be they'll be nice to you on the way down. Yeah. Amen. Um, yeah. I mean, it's good practical advice. It's nice if it's, it comes uh, honestly also. But uh, yeah, I know it, a character or two who. Uh, you know, kisses up and pees down, and that that makes them even someday, more. Someday I'll. Uh, Someday I will write my memoirs and I have at least 10 people when I was in my 30s and 40s writing books and columns and, tra and trying to travel and I would bump into them and right. they were they were pretty well known in the conservative pundocracy, but not just conservative radio, TV, and they were absolutely rude, dismissive, right. arrogant, and then their careers didn't do too well after a point, like everybody's career. And they had written me about, would you please do this? Would you please burn my book? Would you please uh, come to my panel? Would you please have me? Victor, I should get the Bradley Prize. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> yeah. Stuff like that. And right. it's, it's always, you know, don't they have any shame? But yeah. And I always try to be magnanimous and, and try not to remember the way that they had acted. So you want to, you never know. You should. Yeah. When uh, you have to, I have students that show up in my office all the time and I try to as much as humanly possible, talk to them and meet with them. And I have people show up at my house. And even when I can't do anything, you have to say no or you're busy with some some sense of humility and gratitude and always ask yourself, what would you do if you were in that person's place? Right. And um, it's important. 
Well, I, Victor, I hope I hope none of this this forthcoming memoir uh, recounts events that happened on a, a National Review cruise because I would <laughs> I would I would weep I would weep. Well, I think one or two did, but they were not affiliated with National Review. How's that? I I I, I know who they are. Well, anyway, listen, my friend, we have a sponsor for the show, and it's uh, it's Carter and uh, Carty. Carty and Company, let me tell you about them. Carty and Company is a family-operated and nationally recognized fixed-income investment firm with more than 50 years of experience. Carty and Company is licensed in all 50 states with expertise serving both individual and institutional investors. Carty and Company has expertise in what? Tax-exempt bonds. Did you know, Victor? And I think you do. Interest income. On municipal bonds is generally exempt from federal taxes and also often exempt from state and local taxes. So, okay, I'm interested in this. You know, what's this place going to charge me? Well, at Cardi and Company, there's no ongoing annual fee for their clients. It's just a one-time commission fee. Cardi and Company also actively helps local governments borrow funds to improve their communities through municipal bonds, giving their investor clients primary access to these investments. And I can tell you, listeners, as a former member of the Milford, Connecticut Board of Aldermen, that municipal bonds were pretty darn important for any number of reasons. So that one year we had a upgrade the sewerage treatment plant it was going to cost 75 million bucks and it's like you just cannot add 75 million dollars to next year's budget you have to do this through municipal bonds and spread it out over 20 or 30 years so every community does this every town does this these are vital instruments for our 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 lives so investing in them is also a wise thing for many people. So, uh, if you want control of your financial destination and decisions, but if you also want an experienced and knowledgeable person's guidance based on your risk tolerance and your financial objectives, I I heartily recommend that you visit Cartico.com. Cartico, what are you saying, Fowler? Cartico, that's C-A-R-T-Y-C-O.com. For what? Well, generally for initial investments of $5,000 and up. So again, you'll find the investment that's right for you by visiting cartico.com. That's C-A-R-T-Y-C-O dot com. Carty and Company, Inc. does not provide tax um, accounting or legal advice to its clients. And all investors are advised to consult their own tax accounting or legal advisors regarding any potential investment. Municipal securities may be subject to federal alternative minimum tax, the the terrible AMT. It might happen. It might happen. It happened to me one year. Please contact your tax advisor regarding um, uh, suitability of tax-exempt investments for your portfolio. Cardi & Company is a member of FINRA, F-I-N-R-A, and also SIPC, S-I-P-C. I'm afraid to look them up, Victor, to see what they are. Thanks, Cardi & Company, for a, for uh, sponsoring the Victor Davis Hansen Show. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. 
Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.com. .edu/podcast We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson show. So Victor, uh, you know, I didn't I I'm I'm going to spring something on you here. Uh this is bad of me when I do this. I normally before the show I talk I say here's what we're going to talk about. But I just noticed I had a note about um uh, David Harsani, my old friend and colleague at National Review, he had a column that's right. It's in your sweet spot. It's titled James Clapper Can't Stop Lying. <laughs> and uh, the, once again, we heard this from one of the I, I don't remember the guy's name. You do. He was he was on um, Brett Bear's show, one of the infamous 50 plus signers of that yes. letter. And, oh, you know, well, technically we didn't say this. And, and Clapper, who's one of the most egregious of these creeps. Um, uh, is attacking the 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 um, Washington Post, which is reported on this. There was message distortion. All we were doing was raising a yellow flag. That's all they were doing. We we're just raising a yellow flag that this could be Russian disinformation. No, if you read the, if you read the letter very carefully, and how it was reported by their intent, it was designed to tell the American people that. You can go ahead and vote for Joe Biden because his son has been a victim because a bunch of Russians in collusion with Donald Trump, wink, nod, wink, nod, have stolen his laptop and now they're disseminating it. So they said it fit the Russian disinformation model. And then they had one little caveat. And then they, uh, you know, we can't prove it. But then at the end, they said, and it's time that Donald Trump got the Russians out. So the whole thing was that the laptop was was disinformation. Now, as far as James Clapper, this is a former director of national intelligence who went before the United States Congress and swore under oath that the National Security Agency does not spy on American citizens. That was a lie. That was perjury. And when he was caught at it, he said, I gave, quote, the least untruthful answer. So he admitted that he lied. He also, at a key time when Donald Trump was going abroad and conducting foreign policy, he said that he acts as if he's a Russian asset, i.e. that he's a traitor. Any empirical examination of the Donald Trump record, whether you like him or not, killing mercenaries in Syria, getting out of an asymmetrical Russian missile deal that was at our disadvantage, sanctioning oligarchs, flooding the world with cheap oil and crashing Russia's oil price, 
you name it, selling Javelin missiles to Russia, uh, to Ukraine, uh, to be used against Russia, any of that stuff. Compare that to Hillary Clinton, what she was advocating with the reset as Secretary of State or what Biden is doing. And remember, nobody invaded anything anywhere in Ukraine on Donald Trump's watch. That is the record. And so he is a known liar. He defamed the commander in chief as a veritable traitor. He misrepresented the record. And here's the thing to remember about the letter that he organized. That letter came out in just weeks before the 2020 election. So we're over two years. And has anybody, has he said this before? No, he hasn't said anything. He hasn't said a word. So why is he saying this now? He's saying this now because Hunter Biden thinks he's going to sue and his lawyers were in we're embarrassed in a catch-22. How can you sue and say that he's being defamed by material that you say is Russian? That's not his. In other words, how can you sue the New York Post or these other people that had the computer? Or the, it's basically aimed at the uh, owner of the computer shop. How can you say in a lawsuit, you have this computer and you're releasing information that is what? Fake? If it's fake, then it's not his fault. Fake information? No. You have to say that it's my information. And then all the lawyers the next day say, oh, my God, we inadvertently, Connor, we inadvertently said that it's genuine. And Joe Biden is still on record during the debate of 2020 of saying it's Russian disinformation. What are we going to do? Well, let's amend it, saying if it were accurate. So that's why he's coming out, because the consensus is now clear from Hunter Biden himself has admitted, basically, for the first time that this thing is. And he looks like an idiot. He had two years to come clean and he only comes clean now and he doesn't really come clean at all. And so right. he's a he's a really he's a person who's done I, between him and John Brennan, who was a co-organizer of this despicable letter that ruined the reputation of 50 former intelligence operatives and officers who swore to us that this was Russian disinformation, kind of, sort of, yes, no, believe us, right on the edge of uh, an election. And, you know, there was a right-wing poll that suggested that people, to the extent they knew about the laptop had they known the truth it would have they felt affected the election and people right. criticize that poll but the point i'm making is they helped change an election they or at least they they thought they were helping to change an election and they knowingly they knowingly lied to the american people just like brennan had trumped james clapper because he lied two times under oath he lied and said that there were no collateral deaths on obama assassination uh, hits along the Afghan-Pakistani border with drones, raptors, et cetera, et cetera. And he lied and said that the CIA had not monitored the staff, uh, st Senate staff computers, which he knew was a lie. And he apologized and he admitted that he lied on two occasions. And so the, you had two known high officials that should have been prosecuted for perjury lying under oath to the Congress, then organizing a group of their cronies, 
And there were some pretty embarrassing names. Mike Morrell was on that. And Michael Hayden, remember him? Former CIA director. Right. He's known for what? He was the one that when they went in to the Trump uh, house and had the raid, quote, unquote, was it Michael Beschloss, the presidential, quote, unquote, historian, said that, remember the Rosenbergs, i.e., maybe right. he should be executed or gassed, Donald Trump? Yeah. He he retweeted that and said, like it. Right. And, of course, he's, he compared the Trump border cages that he inherited from the Obama administration as Auschwitz-like. So he's totally just. And then Leon Panetta was one of oh. them as well. Mike right. Morrell was one of them. So uh, as, a give, as a rule of thumb... Any of those 50 people who signed that petition saying that that laptop, which was demonstrably Hunter Biden's laptop, the, the evidence was there. Tony Bobolinsky before the election had gone on CBS News and confirmed that those emails that appeared were genuine, that came from him and were sent to him. It was indisputable. They did that for rank political purposes, maybe even to get a job in the incoming Biden uh, administration. They should be there. Sh you talk about ostracism. They should be ostracized from all for further appointments. They have zero credibility. Right. Zero. He's a, he's a despicable we, we, character. He really is. We talked, uh, I raised it a couple of podcasts ago, just about the sheer volume of material on this laptop. And for this thing to be some like a a, a uh, you know a, a a Russian espionage operation. Let's create this podcast. Let's create all this content and put it on this. It would have taken a, a whole freaking division of some Soviet uh, you know spy agency a year just to concoct this crap. Oh, they couldn't. And do then it. and then to have the scenario where it's going to be left somewhere. I mean, it's just it, all it's the personal. How would they know all these personal emails between the various Biden people? How would they know that actually Joe Biden really did get 10 percent? How do they how would they know all of that? And how would and it's even getting worse now with the latest revelations that Hunter Biden felt that he had an end. I don't know. It was with this McGonagall person who is now who was fired FBI uh, director of counterinsurgency in New York, who was working with Albanians to find dirt on other Albanians to help and get cash money, which is girlfriend ratted him out for but oh apparently he was also monitoring chinese oligarchs and reassuring them or he or somebody like him apparently uh joe uh hunter biden was bragging that he had an end with the fbi and could tip off these chinese oligarchs and uh the oligarchs got very angry at hunter because when they got to the united states the treatment which they had been guaranteed would be good was not good and therefore, Hunter's FBI contact uh, did not do as, as he, I guess, supposedly as they were paid. But the point I'm making in this context is that just take the word Biden and put Eric or Don Jr. Trump there, and they would be in prison right now for oh this gosh. stuff. Can you imagine right now if this whole Trump family had this laptop? had all of these tax consequences of giving money back and forth among the, the family of uh, the right. income that uh, the lifestyles versus the actual reported income versus all this other stuff. I mean, there's felonies on that laptop of prostitution, illegal oh drug gosh. use, 
etc. It, it's it just baffles my mind. It really does that uh, it's. I think a lot of us that are maybe some of you who are listening are just shocked. You woke up one day and you said, "What planet am I on? This is not the United States that was based on blind justice and equality of the application of the laws." It's it's not this. These people are completely lawless, and there's no consequences whatsoever. Right. There's no consequences whatsoever. They pick and choose somebody. You can be, you don't have to be in the Capitol. You can be walking around, and you're going to be arrested for illegal. You could be, you could be the pro-life guy in Pennsylvania who's minding yes. his own business. You right? can be, yeah. You can be, and they can ruin your life. And you, you can be these, going to a Latin mass in Virginia. <laughs> yes, and the, these people have total exemption. They let them do anything. It's just amazing. This crooked Biden corrupt cartel. And uh, I, gosh, they, the things that were on there that they admitted to, both legal and moral sins. I mean, remember the back in take with a cousin about procuring women and, and she says no Asian. And he said, I don't want Asian either. You know what I mean? And prostitutes. Yeah. It was racist. Uh, my God. And then you had the diary where the daughter admits that she took a shower too late in age, I guess, with her father. And then we had this crazy FBI retrieval service trying to put the laptop on ice to influence the election and then trying to retrieve the diary and putting James O'Keefe out in the hallway in his underwear. And and then it, it just it boggles the mind what's happened to this country. Yeah, I think uh, I think this this these folks touch on all all the all the the deadly sins uh, are are part and parcel of this of i this feel law. you know that i feel just as one tangent uh i feel that way about stanford university i'll be very candid i graduated with a phd there my first cousin who grew up with us as a sister went there my mother and her sister went there for both undergraduate and graduate degrees that were awarded my nephew went there so I have some family ties with it. And yet I look at this university right now, Jack, and I don't know if you followed it, but it's pretty incredible. The president is under investigation and I don't I don't want to prejudice the investigation, whether it's accurate or not. But he's being accused and he's a multi multi-millionaire, very big player in Gentech. I think he was on the board of directors, if not a vice president. He's got he's in a lot of corporations, a lot of boards. He, I think he was on the Google board, like the former president is now on the Google board. And my point is this, is that he's been accused of doctoring scientific papers 30 years ago. And there is, and I don't know who's telling the truth, the Stanford Daily or him, but it's, a, it's, it's astonishing. Then I walk outside my apartment, I hear a hel helicopter, and it's the paparazzi trying to survey, surveil the Bankman Freed family, right? He's under house arrest right on the Stanford campus. And his parents were, his mother was a bundler of $60 billion for, you know, mine the gap for dark money in Silicon Valley that she was channeling to, she's a professor of law. She was doing this. Her husband is a tax advisor for, you know, left-wing progressive legislation, especially Elizabeth Warren. And then he gets a $250 million bond and he doesn't, that's 25 million, 10%. If I get pulled over tomorrow or any of you people listening with a DUI, you're going to pay 10% down. 
to a bondsman. He didn't. He didn't pay 25. But guess what? We learned that a that the former dean of Stanford Law School and a Stanford professor put up 500000 for this guy. And then when you think this is the bad, then you read that a Stanford professor, she's been tweeting uh, attacks on the Hispanic lawyer that represented Johnny Depp, saying that I hope her body, that she dies and her body's eaten by rats. And then we had the other Stanford professor. Remember her? She would testify during the impeachment trial. Uh, I think it was the Judiciary Committee when she said, well, you know, Donald Trump may think he's royalty, but Baron Trump is no baron. Attacked a, right. 13, a 13-year-old kid. Right. And then and then we had this word list from Stanford of euphemisms where this body of administrators supposedly confined to tech usage, but it was it was on their website that you couldn't use words like American, citizen, immigrant. It was just the biggest embarrassment. And then last year, this kid's going to graduate Stanford Law School, and they send out a bogus letter as if it's from the Federalist Society saying, hey, Federalist Society members, we've decided that, you know, we've redefined insurrection and a form here for a riot as if they're as if it was kind of like a January 6th. It was all bogus. It was just a fake letter that was supposedly coming from the Federalist Society. I don't know if it was a joke or what. And then when you have all this, we birthed Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos. So it wasn't just the Bankman Friedman Free, who grew up in the Stanford campus, or the head of Alameda Investments, which was his girlfriend, Kathleen Ellison, who was a Stanford student. But Elizabeth Holm was a Stanford student, dropout. I used to see her along campus all the time, Jack. Uh, Bankman Freed had the sloppy get up, right? The uh, mad Einsteinian look for effect. The unwashed, the, yeah. Yes, the unwashed. I'm the on. I'm the kind of uh, rebel genius. Hers was just the opposite. She went full Steve Jobs, all black, immaculate, uh, blonde hair, and she would be escorted by some of the most powerful men. She, I would go to these retreats, and I'd see her, or I'd see her on campus, and this was. There were so many people with Stanford affiliations were on the Theranos board. There were so many people that were involved with Bankman Freed that had Stanford credentials. It, it's just, and then with the president and the law school and this word list, it just keeps coming day after day after day. Right. And you ask yourself, what is the common denominator? And the common denominators are an excessive amount of money that fills right. that flows in from Silicon Valley, excessive amount of money, a an exalted, prestigious, I don't know, that's narcissistic view of yourself. And woke and woke. I'll give you one last example. They just released that one of the kids that got in in the incoming class for his essay. You know what his essay was? One hundred. Yeah. Yes. Well, he wrote it a hundred times. Yeah. He didn't write an essay. He wrote it a hundred times. And they just released the the incoming stats. It was twenty two percent. Twenty two percent of the incoming class was white, of which. Probably about 10% were white males. White males are 33% of the population. Whites are 67 to 70%. They used to have proportional representation. But even more fascinating about the entry is that, as I said earlier, the SAT is optional. And yet they will not release this. You can take it. 
it won't do you any good because they rejected 65 to 70 percent of all the people who scored perfect score. That's one percent of SAT takers get everyone right. And Stanford was bragging that they in the past they've rejected 65, 60 to 70 percent, depending on the year. Wow. So, yeah, it was almost. But they won't give you the score of the people who got in. Right. If they took it, they won't tell you. Well, you let in twelve or fourteen hundred people, or what? Three three percent, Jack. Three percent, but they will not tell you whether they took the SAT, and that's for two reasons. One is if they were special admits for minority status, they did not want to tell you if they took that test and what the score was, and if they were legacies, very wealthy, wealthy, privileged kids who didn't have to submit a score. So it worked both ways. In the past, the big obstacle, if you're very, very wealthy and you're connected to Stanford or Harvard and you want your kid and he has to have a minimum SAT score, right? Well, he doesn't now. And the same thing is true of special admits, but they won't release either one. What they have essentially done with the admittance policies of these Ivy Leagues and universities, they've said, we're going to repertory admissions, right? And we're using race and gender and sexual orientation as factors. And the one constituency that we can have disproportionately underrepresented are whites, especially white males. And because that percentage is going to be, I don't know, a third to a half of their percentage in the general population, we don't have room for any working class white kids that get perfect SAT scores. I'm sorry, but we need them for athletes. We need them for children of administrators and faculty, and we need them from big time donors. And that's the only slots we have. So if you're out there in rural Indiana and you studied all through high school and got a 4.5 and did all the Jeep, you're an Eagle Scout, you did everything, you'd ace the SAT, you're not going to get in. We don't want yeah. you're right. the wrong. You're the wrong yeah, unless you're 320 pounds and can play offensive line, that's yes, it. Yes. <laughs> what they say to that kid in Indiana is you're the wrong color, you're the wrong gender, you're the wrong class, class, you don't have enough money, and you don't know anybody. You're a nobody. And we define diversity in a different way. You would be diverse, but that's not the kind of diversity that we want. Yeah. So when I walk across that campus, I just assume now there's not one working class white male kid on that whole campus. Those treasured well, spots are given to they they can't be wasted in their, their mentality on anybody other than a legacy, an athlete or a child of a Stanford connected person. There's too few to go around. Victor, I've said it before. I just hope anyone who's listening, who has an alumnus of Stanford, who's a conservative uh, and uh, has left money in its in his or her will to change your will. I I, I do. I, there's so much conservative. I know some degree of conservative money from Stanford alum goes to Hoover because it's, you know, kind of a psychological alternative why should I be giving money to this woke factory? But there's still conservatives who give money to Stanford who, you know, to so I they know, can. I know. All so I try to do, uh, I try to honor donor intent. When somebody is generous enough to uh, to donate to the Hoover Institution's military history working group, I, I, I'll swear to God that I will honor that. 
donor intent or I won't take the money. So if they want if they want a conservative visiting scholar, that scholar will be conservative. If they want a traditional military history, non woke, it will be that way. But if a person is thinking of giving money, there's schools you can give money that you don't have to go to such extremes. St. Thomas Aquinas College is one. We've talked about this before. Yeah, right. I'm affiliated. I'm prejudiced, prejudiced because I teach three weeks a year at uh, Hillsdale College. But I've watched Larry Arndt uh, presidency since I first was hired in 2004. And I visited earlier. And anybody who goes there and sees that campus will be astounded. Both the physical plant has been utterly transformed. The faculty are are comparable, I think, to the Ivy League. I look at the, I look at the names of the faculty. They're distinguished. They publish. And when you go on the campus, it's like being in the 1950s in the positive sense. Everybody gets along. It's, it is diverse. I see, I see people of different races, backgrounds, but there's no, there's none of this anger anger and there's there's disagreements about politics and i've had students that were left wing there and not a lot but my point is that there's no acrimony there's a general understanding you're going to be civil to somebody and that education is there's a totality of civic education so you're going to be mannered you're going to take an oath you won't cheat you're going to be kind to people you're going to be religious you're going to learn how to use a gun in the in the responsible sense all of these things that build the total person that we used to count on everywhere it's only there now mm-hmm. and so i i would suggest boy if you want to give some money, call up John Servini or Mark Kalkoff or Larry Arn or one of those people at Hillsdale College, because that's where your money should be invested. Well, Victor, you mentioned going to school in the 1950s, and I think we'll close out today's program by looking at your website, victorhanson.com, and some terrific pieces you've written called American Graffitis. And we'll we'll get to that right after this final important message. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. There's something magical about unboxing. When you unbox BritBox, you uncover a world of British entertainment. Stream the UK's most brilliant series, including new and upcoming seasons of Shetland, Father Brown and Death in Paradise. Plus new originals like Payback, Irving Welsh's Crime and Archie, the story of Hollywood's greatest leading man, Cary Grant. Unbox BritBox and escape to the best of British TV. Stream with a free trial at BritBox.com. with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Our home on the internet is justthenews.com, John Solomon's website. Speaking of the internet, if you're on Facebook, visit um, the Victor Davis Hanson Fan Club. It's a great group of people that that have come up and find all kinds of historic links of where Victor's been and where he's uh, shared his wisdom. And uh, what the heck else? At, on Twitter, at VD Hanson, that's Victor's handle. 
And then there is VictorHanson.com. That's Victor's official website. So Victor has written, writes constantly, exclusive material for this website, VictorHanson.com. You've got to subscribe. It's five bucks to get in the door, 50 bucks for the year. And there's a terrific series that he's in the midst of writing. I don't know if it's at the end of it, Victor. There are three parts. It's American Graffitis. So most of us have heard uh, that the the uh, film from the early 70s, it's, it's marking its 50th anniversary. I think it was a great film. I loved when I first saw it. I was only I was only 12 years old. But uh, you you uh, evoke you you grew up not in the sweet spot of that movie, which is based on like early 60s. High I was, school I was younger. Yeah, you I was, I was younger. I was on the but, tail end before the 60s. Right. So, I, so you, I, you 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 breathe the air of American graffiti, you know, yes. and, you, and you and you share it. So it's 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 about generally where you actually grew up. I'm sorry. I, I just got to tell you, our listeners uh, there. There's some scenes that you recounting your youth, Victor. It's, this is terrific. What about these makeshift boxing matches? <laughs> yeah. Another anecdote about some guys you knew that were robbing a gas station that you were at and one of them his mask fell off and everyone who it was frankly <laughs> well, this worst, is a great and, series yeah let's talk about it yeah i mean modesto is about uh 80 miles north on the 99 the 99 used to be before i fired the only really lateral north and south and we lived two and a half miles from it and this backwater rural community that I grew up in was five years behind the coast. So I went to high school in 67 and graduated in 71. And I went to UC Santa Cruz. And when I I went went there, there. I had no idea that it was what was going on, you know, the sixties, it didn't really hit us as what a little bit, but not much. And so it was still American graffiti where, you know, the, the, everybody had to have a 56 or 57 Chevy. It 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 couldn't have a a shifter on the column, couldn't be automatic. It had to be couldn't be three. It had to be four on the floor. And if two eighty three was okay, but you had to get a three fifty one if you were anybody or four whatever it was twenty seven or twenty three. I can't remember. And everybody cruised on Saturday night. But one of the things that happened, there was a really the guys hung out and everybody was played football and they drank beer and. My parents were very strange. They were all, you know, my mom had gone to Stanford Law School. My father, the University of Pacific, they had were perf- had jobs and my dad farmed and did, uh, he was an administrator. And uh, my grandparents were very central in our lives as farmers and uh, very multi-generational family. But my point is that uh, it, I, I think my parents were trying to tell us that you're going to, participate in the rough underbelly of America because most of the kids were pretty rough. Uh, and I would go in on Saturday night with our friends. And when you got, you know, 17 or 18, it was illegal, but people were out. They'd go out in the country and drank. And one of the guys got, I had the idea, we'll have a professional boxing. And I mean, they did professional ring and admission and referee and betting. And you'd go in there and, and you know, you'd have to, if somebody said, I challenge you, you'd have to duke it out. Uh, the 99 was where you met the real world. So a lot of kids worked night shift. In those days, they had all night service stations, much more because there was no serious crime. But 
we would always feel like one of our friends was at an all night service station. It might be hazardous. So, you know, people would cruise around town. They'd go to the bowling alley downtown, the neighborhoods. Usually they knew where the 10 or 12 prettiest girls lived and drive by to see if they were out on the lawn in the summer or something, talk. And then they would end up late at night at one of these service stations or two or three of them near the 99. And you would talk to people coming off the 99. That was your way of meeting new people. But and I, I mentioned some of the weird things that went on. Some of them were pretty, they were violent and illegal, but not anywhere near now. And what what do you do when you're with a bunch of people and you see a lot of people go completely crazy and demolish a car, for example? You, you know, my, and my mom would always say to me, okay, you're going to go out with some pretty rough guys tonight. So what are you going to do if? And that was always, I was always aware of that. But in one case, I have to be very careful for, because these people are still in my community in their sixties. Uh, but nonetheless, I know them all, but some of them went nuts and destroyed a car. A poor man dropped it off. It was not working. He was, came off the freeway. They got drunk. They decided to destroy it. And he came back and they all fled. I was there alone with the attendant and he came back and his car was demolished. And I was trying to console him and, and get a police. And he, and I didn't know if it was stolen. I didn't think it was. The other people who destroyed it said it was stolen, but it was just constant. Uh, I don't know what it was. It was a young, it wasn't rebellion against the country. It wasn't rebellion against the Vietnam War. In 71, it was, there were no, basically, there was just about no land troops. The volunteer uh, army had been passed and none of us were going to be drafted when we turned 18. I was 17. Or actually, I was, uh, I guess I was, yeah, I was 17. Well, it was, it was, one thing it definitely wasn't, was not, was solitary. You, you were, you were with, Big groups of young people hanging yeah. out, and yeah. it's quite different than what life is like. And they today. were all the middle class. There was no wealthy people, and there were no really poor people. Everybody could scrounge together a car. We were weird. Everybody thought we were weird. Uh, and I thought we were weird because here we were all – you know, I'm living in my grandparents' house that I kind of grew up in. It was next door to my – but we had a little tiny house. It was 800 square feet. And then my dad just built a house next to it for three bedrooms of like 700 square feet. So you had to walk out in the rain between the two houses. We slept in one house and walked in the kitchen, the living room, the other. And they had salaries, but I could never figure out what the money went for. I don't know if it was for farming or what, but we didn't have very much money. And then cars, my dad was the Swedish chauvinist. So he, imagine in the 60s, he was buying these imported Volvos used like a, a Volvo 455, a Volvo 555, uh, whatever it was. And, and then we drove them when he would get to the next one, we would drive them and nobody knew how to work on them, but we did. And so when everybody was having these hot rod cars, you know, that were hyped, you know, that were really hopped up. And uh, we had this little putt-putt 70 horsepower Volvo. Although I think the girls liked it more than they did the hot. They thought it was kind of cute or neat or something. But uh, it was a very strange time where, you know, I, I got most, I, I think I got three B's in high school, but that was not something you bragged about. You did not brag about that. And uh, you had to show that you could play sports 
And if somebody pushed you and wanted to fight you, you had to be able to defend yourself. Right. And, and if you didn't, then there was no, I mean, nobody was going to come to your aid is what I'm trying to say. And, yeah. and, and then you had to be aware that at any given time, there was, uh, you know, some people could get drunk and drive and, and, and they were people did stuff that you didn't approve of or they, I didn't use drugs, but, uh, you know, I'd have a beer with some of them, but I didn't try to drink myself into a stupor. 24. Who could drink a case that was at seven o'clock? Hey, Victor, I'll pick you up at seven o'clock and by midnight, I'll have 24 beer, beers under my belt. Well, that's almost liver toxicity, right? It's just, I, agree. I, I never understood said, that, Victor. Yeah. I never, like, I never like you mentioned it. Cause how could you drink 24? Cans of water. I don't know. Beer, right? I don't know if they did or they just poured them out, but they always say, hey, I finished my case. <laughs> I got my course cases done. How about you guys? It was always competition. And then it yeah. was always you'd be there and all of a sudden some guy, hey, Victor, he he said you were a wimp. What are you going to do about it? And I said, what do you mean he said I'm a wimp? <laughs> he said, hey, Rodney said you're a piece of crap. You got to go fight him. <laughs> Why would I want to fight him? Yeah. And, you know, and they'd say, well, don't ask, go hit him. <laughs> you know, and, that, and that was, you know, and then some girl who was, you know, it was just, it was very tough. It was, uh, it was sort of, you know, and then I had this, these. But uh, in hindsight, you, it was, it was enjoyable. Yes. Yeah? So you're not. You I had you know. some of my closest friends. I still see them. Yeah. I, yeah. It was on Gerald. There was a camaraderie that, uh, yeah. that. But they were, it was also juvenile. They, th- they got into their heads that there was a witch up on the King's River. <laughs> and seriously? <laughs> yes, yeah, seriously. They said, you know, there's a witch up there. And one guy, you know, a lot, half of us were Mexican American. And one guy said it was the Virgin of Guadalupe, not a witch. But they actually, we'd get in cars and drive out there and then walk along this pier out in the, pitch of night at one in the morning on the river waiting for the witch to come out and then somebody said i see her there she is and they'd all run back and it was just kind of juvenile too but there was no shooting killing yeah mash and grab carjacking and uh but it was it was you had to show you it was when i got to uc santa cruz and everybody had long hair and they were smoking dope and it was hey what are you doing hey Where are you from? I'm from Pacific Palisade. That it was just a whole different world. <laughs> it was it was this hippie, you know, when I was in so what you would do is you'd go over to a guy's house and you know, at eight o'clock at night. My parents let me go out one night a week on Saturday night, even though I had a car. My brother and I shared an old Volvo twin brother. And guys would be lifting weights, right? And they'd say, Hey Victor, can you do two hundred? I couldn't. But they were, and then I'd go over to Santa Cruz, and it was just the opposite aesthetic. You wanted the skinniest little arms you could have. You wanted to have the most effeminate voice. You had, you didn't take a bath. You didn't wear cologne. These guys would like take three showers a day and take a gallon of brute and pour it over their head. And, and they didn't drink beer. It was wine and dope. And talking about books. And one time I'll finish with this story. I was getting so frustrated with all of this UC Santa Cruz stuff 
left wing, Shays posters on the hallway, uh, you name it. I mean, it was right during the Cambodia thing. I just couldn't take it. And they were all arrogant, wealthy kids. So I invited all these guys up. <laughs> they all came up and they went to a party. And what do you do at a UC Santa Cruz party among hippies? You know, it's like you yeah. sit around and you get a hookah and I guess you just smoke dope and then you pair off and have sex with some anonymous person or something. And so they come in with tight T-shirts, <laughs> you know, kind of boots and Levi's and baseball caterpillar hats. <laughs> and they all look like they can't look like little Arnold Schwarzeneggers, right? Yeah. <laughs> and they go into this room and they go, hey, what's happening? Well, I don't know, man. Where are you from? Hey, lighten up. Hey, where's the beer? Where's the cores? Where's the chicks? <laughs> and then uh, and, and then they ended up, of course, trashing the whole place. They got in fights. <laughs> I I went to bed and somebody called me up and said, Hey, one of your friends from that god-awful Fresno area just threw a sofa out the window and somebody was in it. <laughs> It wasn't too high. And so the next day, the provost called me and said, who are these strange creatures? Creatures is the word he used that you invited up here. And I said, they're just people. And he said, well, I would like you, if you promise me that these people will not come again, I won't charge you. Because I didn't do it, you know, for the, the broken sofa. But it was a culture shock for them and the host. And I couldn't, I never navigated. I, you know, I'd go five days a week, my freshman years, and it was all 60s hippies, uh, Grateful Dead, marijuana people, that nasal voice I couldn't stand, left-wing politics, and then 180 miles back in Salma, it was, hey, Victor, let's have a beer, and hey, I got a job at Fruhoff Trailer, or I'm working at Calcan Cannery, or hey, I got a great job at Del Monte, you know, yeah. and all married, you know, at 19, and it was just too much to, to process. And the beer was Coors, right? Always Coors? Uh, yes, always Coors. I don't know if it was <laughs> okay. true, but they said it was never what? It had to be refrigerated, remember? Oh, and, the Coors was always a big... In the East yeah. Coast, people would say, you can't get Coors. You heard about it. They didn't have preservatives in it, supposedly, and they had to keep it cold. Yeah. Everybody right. drank Coors. I didn't like Coors. The, the, one, the one beer that they all made fun of, they called it piss water. Yeah. And they hated it was Olympia. And it was much less, I thought it was, had less of a hop taste. It was more watery. I liked Olympia. So I would always say, hey, is anybody having Olympia? Oh, man. <laughs> look at him. Hey, everybody. Look at Victor. He's drinking that piss water. He's a wimp. What the hell's wrong with him? Take it from well, him. If they, still make, yeah, if they still make an Olympia, Victor, next time I go out there, I'm bringing you a case. Yes, <laughs> I, I, I didn't fit very well, but I like, I, I, uh, well, your, you know, when you get older, you, you look you back are. at your, you look back at your parents and you think, my God, what were they doing? You know, because there was a country farm school, uh, K through eight with all white and ethnic farmers, Armenians, Greeks, Japanese. It was very, and then there was the West side school. It was 95% Mexican American. And we were right on the dividing line of the school districts. And my mom right. insisted that we go to the Hispanic school. So we saw diversity, I guess, but we were like eight white people. 
you know, the, our, my brothers, two brothers and a few people and the white people that were there were very poor. And boy, it was tough. But I ended up having lifelong friends that were Mexican-American. That was my, my friends today I went to high school with and grammar school, kindergarten with. I still see them. But I don't, I don't know what my parents were trying to do is what I'm saying, because given they had left the farm and apparently from after they died, it must have been that they they went. My mom went to Stanford and my dad, you know, he was in the the Air Force, the Army Air Force, but he went to University Pacific. He was a and they they situated themselves with wealthy coastal people and whatever happened, they didn't like it. And they treated back to this little tiny insular and they wanted us not to get uh, they wanted us to go to school and be professionals, but they did not want us to adopt that culture. They wanted to have agrarian values and small right. town and friends and be able to take care of yourself in a very practical sense. Well, and they were I pretty, but it was pretty were, tough sometimes. I, I mean, it, they were it, they were right though, and it worked. It was just a very think. funny time. I my brother, I remember walked down one day and a guy pulled over and he was really huge and beat the hell out of my brother, just saw him on the street. And in those days, think about it. So my dad just took it upon himself to find this guy and they, and they, the police arrested him. And so my dad goes to, I won't mention which town, it's a little rural town. He goes to the jail and the police says, that's the guy that did it. And so my dad walks in, he shouldn't be able to do that. But they said, you know, they didn't know him. He didn't have any special access or clout. They just said, your son got beat up by that guy, Mr. Hansen. My dad was huge and he liked to fight. And so he went in there and he said, so you beat up my son. Mm-hmm. And the guy goes, yeah, I liked it or something to that effect. So he said, well, let's settle it right now. They're going to let me in your cell. So I got, they're going to let me in your cell and I'm going to come in that cell with you and we're going to have it out. Okay. And I just went nuts. And, and he, he, the next day, his mother and father came out with some kind of paper saying they were going to sue us because he was his, they, my dad had threatened him. And then my mom said, you know, I'm a lawyer. <laughs> and oh my gosh. Just stuff like that happened every day in this crazy place. Yeah. Well, I never met your dad, of course, but I want to testify to your, when I visited earlier, you know, last year and I saw on your wall, you had a a note, uh, a letter from the football, the Giants, the New York football yeah. Giants, your father, like they're not sending letters Fire, uh, yeah. to, to, to a little, little tiny guys. So he, no, he, 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 he had a try. He, I think he got $500 a seat for one season with their farm team. Yeah. And then he decided that he took too much damage. He turned his knees or something. I don't know what yeah. happened, but uh, it was anyway. Well, that was that was an American graffiti childhood. It was, everything in that yeah. movie I could identify with. Well, Victor, it's it it really is a terrific uh, series of pieces. As is all the um, ultra pieces you write for. Um, VictorHanson.com. So, uh, want to recommend it, folks. I hope we, you know, lifted the lid a little bit. You can, you, you see what you're missing if you're not subscribing. Victor, that's about all the time we have. We'll get, we'll do the usual end of show. So, thanks to all who listen, regardless of the platform you listen on. When you listen, though, via iTunes or Apple Podcasts, you can, uh, you can rate the show zero to five stars. 
practically everyone is five. Thank you very much. We appreciate that. Hope that means we're uh, providing uh, content and and, uh, and uh, Victor's wisdom that, that you, you really find engaging. Uh, one person who left a comment, and I, I want to read one also from the website, but here's one that somebody that left a comment from Apple. It's from Don the Painter, and it's titled Encouragement. Hi, Victor. We are about the same age. Truly enjoy listening to your podcast. I'm a believer, and your work reminds me of Ephesians 5, 14, 16. You are truly redeeming your time on earth. Blessings to you and your family. A highlight of my life would be to run into, run into you in a Home Depot aisle and have a good chatter coffee. Hope I see you in heaven, Victor. Your words have anchored so many Americans to the truth, Don the painter. That's really cool. That's nice of him. I hope I make it. I'm trying my best. Uh, you'll, you, uh, <laughs> I hope you make it to Home Depot. Now, yeah. listen, off, off your uh, VictorHanson.com, here's a comment from Jill Clark. Right. So part one and two here are absolutely wonderful. I read this with a smile on my face. I think so many of us regular Americans live similar lives. My dad worked for the attorney general's office as a litigator in Salt Lake City, but we had a family paper route to pay for our summer trips. Dad would wake us up early on Sunday to help him roll and deliver Sunday editions of the Deseret News. That was our family's equivalent of peddling a fruit done by the Hanson family. I'm a middle school teacher and worked with my own 16-year-old this summer at our local uh, MLS soccer stadium in a food cart, trying to teach that kid the value of work, any work. Thank you for doing the grueling work of writing articles like these to remind us of how great America was and is still, hopefully. That's from Jill Clark. Thank you, Jill. Victor, thank you uh, for... Again, all the wisdom you shared, it's a real honor to be able to do this show with you twice a week. I'm sure Sammy feels the same. And uh, folks, thank you for listening. We will be back soon with another episode of the Victor Davis Hansen Show. Thanks for listening. Thank you, everybody, for listening. 